0: Pray with me, please. Father, open now your word to us so that we might truly love you all the more. May your spirit be unhindered to do his good work. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been um, during the season of Lent, we've been thinking deeply. About how it is that Jesus loves us, and what it means for us to follow Him. Uh, we have we followed Him on His way to the cross on three marches, as it were. Uh, the first was a march to prayer, where He left the upper room and traveled outside the city to the mount uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where He prayed, and where He was arrested and interrogated. From that point on, there was a a march to his trials back into the city, into this area where his trials, interrogations happened that Thursday night from Annas to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin from Pilate and to Herod and back to Pilate once again. And today we're going to follow Jesus on his third and final march, his death march from Pilate's court somewhere here in the city, out perhaps to this area to a place called Golgotha, um, the place of the skull. We read about it in Mark chapter 15. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Well, so far on this sleepless night, Jesus has been betrayed, deserted, denied, arrested, repeatedly tried, repeatedly struck about the face, spat upon, falsely accused, mocked repeatedly, beaten with a reed, a crown of thorn. Thorns pressed about him, and he was scourged. This flogging, this scourging was exceptionally brutal. It involved a whip of several strands that had bone or metal embedded in the ends, such that it would literally flay the flesh from a man's back. The Jews would restrict themselves to 39 lashes of this torture. The Romans, who were administrating Jesus' scourging, had no such limit. The scourging itself could beat a man to death before he even reached the cross. But it was part of the punishment And part of the humiliation for the convicted to bear his own cross outside of the city. Likely it was that horizontal cross member that he bore across his back that flayed raw back. And they would carry it outside the city to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. It translates into our language from the Romans language of Latin. We call it Calvary. And after all that Jesus has endured this night, is it any wonder that he needed help bearing the cross up to that mount of of crucifixion? We read in verse 21 of Mark 15, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Simon of Cyrene, we, we know little of him, um, best guess is that he was a Jew from Africa, somewhere In eastern Libya, who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And he adds this hopeful little curious detail he's a dad. Two boys, Alexander and Rufus by name. Now, if I have my maps right, if Simon is from Libya, he has traveled more than 1,500 miles to observe this Passover. And when the the Roman soldiers compel him to carry this cross, this bloody cross belonging to a, a convicted criminal, some scholars suggest that Simon would no longer be able to celebrate the very thing that he had come so far to do. That he would be rendered unclean and would not be able to celebrate the Passover feast, to taste of the Passover lamb. One writer put words to what might have been Simon's thoughts. He says the Romans had this terrible law. They can ask you to carry anything they like for one mile, what is considered a reasonable load. They call it the law of conscription we called it other things. We did not like it. Now he was asking me to pick up that piece of wood that this man had carried. Though we hated the Romans, if someone was being crucified, even a Jew knew that this man must be cursed by God and had done a terrible thing. If I touched that wood and put it on my body, I would be unclean. And then I could not take the Passover or eat of the Passover lamb. If only Simon knew whose cross he was being forced to bear. If only he knew what John the Baptist had declared when he saw Jesus coming towards him early, early in the book of John. He says, behold, he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God Who takes away the sin of the world? No fear, Simon, in bearing this cross. It will not make you unclean, it can make you clean. And I wonder if Simon sorted it out. I wonder if he figured out the identity of the man whose cross he was forced to bear. There are some hints in Scripture that he did. In this verse in Mark 15, Simon is called the dad of Alexander and Rufus. Um, Why why point that out? The only only reason that I can imagine is that um, these were men, his sons were men, well known in the Christian community that Mark was writing to. Perhaps his sons were numbered among the believers there and could act as living witnesses to this story. They'd heard it from their dad, after all. I can think of no more powerful telling of the crucifixion than from Simon's perspective. Now, in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, there's a mention of a man named Rufus. In Rome, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well, Paul writes. Um, It's possible that this Rufus is the one, um, the son of Simon, of Cyrene. There's another reference in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 20. It says, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And he can't help but wonder if they learned, or even if he was amongst their number, this Simon, who was a Cyrene. I hope he sorted it out. But I wonder this morning, if if you stood where Simon stood, would you have done it? Would you have taken up Jesus' cross? It's not like Simon had a choice with this Roman law of conscription and all. But what if there was no compulsory law? Would you step up and identify yourself as a follower of a man on the way to the gallows? with all that an action like that might mean, would you do it? You know, in Luke's gospel, there are three calls for followers of Jesus to be cross-bearers, three times. The first is in Luke chapter 9. And Jesus says to all, to all, if anyone would come after me, In Luke chapter 14, another time, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count So therefore, Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does it mean then, this call to cross bearing? The language Jesus uses when he calls us to take up our cross here in Luke makes it plain, doesn't it? Jesus prefaces his call in Luke 9, and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So this cross-bearing, it's, it's an act of self-denial. It's laying down self-rule. It marks us as Jesus followers, not our own. Professor Dale Bruner says that cross-bearing means to disown ourselves and the lordship of our own thinking and to go under new management. Self-denial is not so much giving up chocolates at Lent as it it is giving up on ourselves as lords. It is the decision to let another lord rule one's life. It signifies open allegiance to Jesus the crucified one. Such allegiance will expose one to the hostility of the world and entail the risk of losing one's life as he lost his. This image of cross-bearing, it's, it's a costly image, Jesus says, for sure. Supremely costly. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All that he has. Pastor John Piper put it like this. He said, taking up our cross means Jesus has become more precious to us than approval, honor, comfort, and even life itself. He says, refusing the cross and thus trying to save our lives in this world is, is pursued mainly by amassing as much prosperity and protection as we can. We think that we, by gaining a large chunk of the whole world, we can save our lives from the opposition, shame, suffering, and death of the cross. So our deep desire to avoid being shamed in this world is a huge reason we try to accumulate wealth. The deepest hindrance to following Jesus, he says, is not the love of money. It is deeper. Money is only a material means to our craved emotion. What we really want to avoid is being humiliated, being disrespected, being shamed. And what we really want is to be honored and praised and made much of. Cross-bearing. It is an uncomfortable image. It conjures up great suffering and humiliation and even death. But when it is done for another, all of that still remains, but we add to it the idea of sacrifice and humility and love. Because it is by by our cross-bearing obedience that we love Jesus back. Jesus himself said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. So because of his love for us that's demonstrated on the cross... We love him all the more and we take up our cross, which causes Jesus to pour his love out on us all the more, he says, which makes us want to love him back all the more, which makes him pour out his love on us all the more It makes us want to love him back all the more. And it becomes this vicious, beautiful cycle of loving and being loved. Is that what fuels your obedience, your cross-bearing sacrifice, that you love God because you are loved by God? See, that's what makes it worth it, as we've been learning all year long, right, in our study of 1 Peter coming leading up to Lent. Jesus, we are saying, is worth it. Twice Jesus calls us to carry the cross. Simon really makes the third time in Luke's gospel that we're confronted with this call of discipleship. This time it's more like a picture than than words, though. Simon does what disciples are supposed to do. In Luke, it's interesting, he It says, quite literally, he took up the cross and followed Jesus. Luke puts it this way. He says, they led him away and they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus, following Jesus, as it were. So, will you take up your cross daily and follow Jesus? If you intend to follow him, There really is no other way. Jesus has made that abundantly clear. Will you take up your cross and follow in Jesus' way? Do you? Will you do that today? Because if you notice, Jesus calls us to do this daily. Not just once, but daily we're to take up our cross and follow him. One of the prayers that I like to pray as part of my day, is one that was written long ago by John Wesley. It's known as the Covenant Prayer. And it goes like this, and I've kept his, uh, his language uh, as part of it. He says, I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. It's a beautiful expression of a heart that's willing to bear a cross. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. Can you pray that prayer? Would you, would you pray that prayer and make it your own? I'll post it for you on our blog. So that you can do that. Or maybe you'll want to memorize Luke 9.23 and make that your daily prayer for the rest of this Lenten season. Jesus, I want to come after you. Help me to deny myself and take up my cross this day and follow you. What a beautiful prayer to start your day. Every day. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and follow me. There's a second encounter on this quite literal way of the cross that we're walking with Jesus today. In verse 27 of Luke 23, we'll we'll follow the rest of Luke's account. There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So there's a great crowd following Jesus. Just kind of as a side note, Simon is not bearing this cross in private, is he? And that seems to be the way of true cross-bearing. It's public at some level. It cannot be kept hidden. But amongst this crowd, Luke focuses in on a group of women. And they are mourning and lamenting for Jesus. And some have suggested that these might have been traditional or even professional mourners and that they lacked sincerity. But the text doesn't give us any indication of that, so I think it's best that we assume that these ladies, daughters of Jerusalem, Jesus will call them, are mourning in earnest. We don't know how much they grasp, but it seems they at least grasp the great horror of the suffering that they are witnessing. And they mourn for the one who bears it. And I'm so glad for these ladies. I'm glad that in the midst of all the mocking and scorn and brutality of the way of the cross that Jesus is walking, at least there's this little band of ladies who care for Jesus. Thank God for them. And it's from that framework of their genuine grief and sorrow over what they are witnessing happening to Jesus that I think we should hear the words that Jesus now speaks to them. In verse 28, turning to them, to the women, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is, this is Jesus' last teaching. It's his final sermon, so to speak, before the cross. It's the last place you'd imagine him to stop and give a lecture, right? Carrying the cross to be crucified. And it's the least likely of audiences, this group of women. You know, Jesus has been silent before the world's great men. Before Jewish high priests and Roman governors and self-proclaimed kings. But here, amidst suffering unimaginable to us, Jesus stops to speak to these women and to care for them, I believe. And what Jesus says, I hear kind of pre-echoes of Philippians 2 In humility, Jesus considers these women to be more important than his own suffering. And he doesn't merely look out for his own personal interests, but he looks out for their interests. That's how I hear Jesus' cryptic last pre-cross words that he's speaking here. I think he's caring for these women who are mourning for him. And so he warns them. Jesus he turns to them and he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He urges them to weep, but not for him. Because even amidst, amidst the scourging and the crucifixion, Jesus is fulfilling his father's plan. The cross, Paul will say in that Philippians 2 passage, is Jesus' deepest obedience to his father. It's his greatest love for his father. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross don't weep for me, Jesus says This is my great act of obedient love to my Father. It is is my deepest joy. Hebrews tells us this. As we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and then seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't weep for me, Jesus says, but weep for you And for your children. So severe is the judgment that will come upon them. As daughters of Jerusalem. That they should weep for themselves and for their children. They should weep for their city. As Jesus did when he first entered it. You remember when Jesus is about to make that triumphal entry. And he stops outside of the city. It says in Luke 19. When he drew near and he saw the city. He wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There is a great and terrible judgment Coming upon the people of Jerusalem, their city, for their rejection of Jesus. And so great will be this judgment that Jesus is talking about that what had once been a great blessing, the bearing of children, will now become like a curse. And what had once been like a curse, barrenness, will now become a blessing. They will wish their children had never been born. They will wish they were dead. Jesus says that what he has suffered pales in comparison with the judgment that is yet to come. And this played out in history within a generation of this time. The fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 um, One writer described it this way, on his way to the cross, Jesus is looking ahead to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 at the end of the first Jewish-Roman war. He's expressing his pity and compassion for the victims of that impending conflict. In other words, by rejecting the understanding of the kingdom of God that Jesus brought, and by following other leaders into a political and military revolt, the Jewish people would put themselves on a collision course with Rome that within a generation would have this tragic result, and it's described this way. Jerusalem in AD 70 was isolated from the rest of the nation, and factions within that city fought over strategies of defense. As a siege wore on, people began dying from starvation and plague. The high priest's wife, who once basked in luxury, scavenged for crumbs in the street. Meanwhile, the Romans employed new war machines to hurl boulders against the city walls. Battering rams assaulted the fortifications, and Jewish defenders fought all day and struggled to rebuild the walls at night. Eventually, the Romans broke through the outer wall, then the second wall, and finally the third wall. Still, the Jews fought, scurrying to the temple as their last line of defense. And that was the end for the valiant Jewish defenders and for the temple. Historian Josephus claimed that Titus wanted to preserve the temple, but his soldiers were so angry at their resilient opponents that they burned it. The remaining Jews were slaughtered or sold as slaves. And that happened in the year 70 A.D., within a generation of Jesus speaking these words. And that points to an even greater judgment that waits at the end of time. So on his way to the cross, literally steps away from the cross, Jesus is caring for these women who mourned for him by warning them of the judgment that comes upon those who reject him and his kingdom. Kevin DeYoung says that the point of Good Friday is not to feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus does not need our sympathy. The point is to feel sorry for your sin. For if we don't, we have good reason to weep. There will be no salvation for those who reject God's appointed Savior. Even amidst his greatest sorrow and suffering, Jesus is caring for others around him to rescue them from the judgment that is to come. What does that mean for us? Watch this short video. Numbers. We live by numbers. We track and count and measure everything. And sometimes we think the only numbers that really matter are the big ones, but it's the single digits that make the difference. The Bible says that heaven rejoices with the number one. Yeah, heaven rejoices each time even one person comes to know Jesus. We pastors dream about big numbers and we should, but a daily focus on one meaningful interaction for Christ, that's the true difference maker, one friend, One family member, one co-worker, one person at a time. We want to see God move in our nation like we have never seen before. But it all starts with one. I've got my one. And now I'm challenging you and your church to join us and to find yours. Because ultimately, the only number that really matters is one. Who's your one? So, have you watched that? I want you to think... When you think about this greater judgment that is coming, that awaits those without Christ, that Jesus is talking about here, language, language like this from 2 Thessalonians, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When you hear that, who's the one person that comes to mind for you who you long to be spared from the judgment that Jesus is prophesying? Who is the one person that you believe God is calling you to love and share the rescuing grace of Jesus with? Just one. Who's your one? I have one. I have two, in fact, two neighbors that I love. And I'm pleading with God on a daily basis to rescue them. Who's your one? You know, tonight our prayer gathering at 6 o'clock in this room is going to be given over to praying for your one. The person who's on your heart and mind right now. I hope you'll come. I hope you'll come. We want to pray for you and for your the one that you love, that you want to see spared God's judgment and experience his mercy. And when you came in this morning, you received some resources about all this. Um, There's there's a a bookmark and some other things that hopefully will be helpful for you. You'll get an email later today explaining how a lot of that works. Um, You'll hear a lot more about it in your small group in the future. But let's, let's begin to pray for our one, And ask that God would grant us an open door for the gospel in the life of the one friend that we love most and long to see no God's mercy, not his judgment. As as Pastor J.D. Greer put it in the video, it all begins with one. Who's your one? We used to do this around North Wake a long time ago and Rob Craig had this thing called 111. You remember that if you've been here a while? One friend, you pray for one minute, Every day at one o'clock. And so. We regularly close our service by commissioning people who are being sent out, you know, missionaries and church planners and such. But today we want to commission you. Commissioned by God to love your friend. To speak to them of Christ. And so if you'll stand. We want to commission you to go and love your one friend in the name of Jesus. There's a fascinating interaction with Jesus and one of the scribes, and they're disputing, and he comes up and he answers, asks Jesus a question, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then Paul turns in this to a commission to us and he says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So if you'll bow with me, I'd like to pray a prayer of commissioning over you. Let's pray together. Lord, on these, my friends, I pray your richest blessing, the fullness of the love of God upon their lives, an unlimited fullness that spills over into neighbors and family members and coworkers and classmates. Lord, use us. We think of the one that you've put on our heart, and we say, God, use us. Let us bear to them the message of the love of God, even for them. And so, Lord, we stand before you, commissioned now to go and love our neighbors as the most important thing we can give ourselves to. We look forward to hearing your faithfulness as you enable us to be faithful in this that's before us. Father, we pray this in the great and matchless name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. And let's let that be our benediction for this day. Go in peace and the love of God and share it well. You're dismissed.